Cue the violins. Once a week, two middle-aged Jews meet at the intersection of fascinating news and personal angst. It's old media meets even older media, with reveals Phil Bronstein and Dave Pell of Next Draft. This is What Hurts, worrying about news since 2015. So hello and welcome to the latest edition of the almost occasionally weekly podcast, What Hurts. I'm Phil Bronstein, and I'm here with my friend, until now, Dave Pell. Yeah, we're back. After a few weeks, Phil was away on vacation reporting, and uh, I got to tell you, I feel a little bit— On assignment is what they say when you're suspended. (laughs) Oh, I see. Is that what it was? (laughs) Yeah. There, he's on assignment. She's on assignment for the rest of her life. Yeah, you were using some performance-enhancing drugs, and they had to uh, kick you out for a while. Well, you know, I was in Burma, so I have an excuse for not being able to recognize any of the stories you're going to quiz me on in a minute. So at least at least I have an excuse this time. But I went to Burma. It was right around election time. I was thinking that, you know, something would happen because it looked a little tense. I arrived the day after the elections, and instead, everybody did the logical thing and stepped back and accepted reality. And when does that happen anymore in the world? Yeah, certainly not anywhere in America. So, And then I got back and watched the movie No Escape, which is about a couple, a family going to a Southeast Asian country like Burma and the they arrived the day after the prime minister was assassinated. And the rest of the movie is them and Pierce Brosnan trying to get out of the country. Glad I didn't see it before I left. Well, you made it out and I, I learned something about myself while you were gone because I have – Lonely? I just – I was lonely. Uh, it's incredibly wonderful to be sitting here across from you, darling. You, you but, don't – except for the eye contact piece. Yeah. I don't like the eye contact as I've told you many times. I, I'll look at my notes. I, I prefer to look s- through the screen at somebody. But I uh, – it's it's good to be back and I learned something about myself actually while you were gone. I, I not only have anticipatory anxiety when it comes to my own travel. I was actually nervous about your travel. So That's funny, I'm glad you're back safely. Common. I was nervous about my travel too. Yeah, see, there you and go. And my wife is still waiting. I think the malaria period, <laughs> waiting period is about two weeks. So we're still waiting for some horrible reaction to the trip. Yeah, it's interesting. Now we're, we're worrying about the same hurts at the same time. I think our cycles are matching. Yeah, yeah, but that doesn't make for sort of an interesting show. All right, so let's get right into it. Right into it. Our favorite topic or our favorite game is what's behind the tabs. All week long, I go and look at different stories on the internet. As you know, open up many internet tabs, and I pick out the ones that sort of stand out as especially either noteworthy, fascinating, or just things to make one of us look ridiculous during the discussion. We know which one that is. Can I just say this is not my favorite game, but I get its point, so go ahead. All right. Well, here we go. We'll start. What's behind tab number one? Tab Here's the headline. One. Picketing Wilson. Picketing Wilson. Well, let's see. Owen Wilson was in the movie No Escape, but I have a feeling that's not right. That would be an incredible segue, but it's not. <laughs> okay. I'm giving up instantly. Here. Instant give up. Well, I'm, here I'm talking about picketing Woodrow Wilson. As you know, no, politically incorrect. Yes. He, uh, as you know, was a president of the United States, but these days, that's not necessarily making one worthy of getting a plaque around a college campus. And the students at Princeton have argued that his name should be removed from all parts of the campus because of his racist history. And that's actually moved on to other campuses. Uh, one campus now is saying they want to do the same with Thomas Jefferson. And oddly, at a school in Canada, your home country, Ottawa University, they canceled a yoga class because they felt that it was culturally inappropriate. Actually, 
culturally appropriate and that they were appropriating someone else's culture and then teaching it and that was inappropriate. So well, they you, suspended the class. You're moving into the safe space discussion and that viral video where they surrounded a professor who said, you know, it's okay to be slightly inappropriate on Halloween with costumes and got really just pounded and screamed at by a bunch of students who, who chased him away. Yeah. The, the amazing thing about this movement on campus from the trigger warnings to the Princeton Woodrow Wilson thing to, to the, the microaggression to the microaggression to the trigger warnings is when you first see them, your initial reaction is this is ridiculous. These kids have to focus on something more reasonable. They're going too far. They're being too touchy feely. But then when you actually start to read the stories, sometimes they start to make a little sense. And I'll give you one example. Today, the latest campus issue came up on Harvard's campus. I don't know if you heard about this, but at Harvard, they have one member of the faculty who's in charge of every undergraduate house, and they're sort of a, in charge of the cultural activities at that house. And they decided today that they should move towards changing the name after 300-some-odd years of that person. The person's name who does, has that job is the housemaster. Ah. So <laughs> you can see how when you're first reading the article, you're thinking, come on, what does it matter what labels we use? And then when you say, okay, housemaster – could be perceived as a bit offensive by some people. Right. There's something good about it and there's something irritating. But I actually have other people having trigger warnings is my trigger warning. So it, <laughs> it is can become a vicious cycle. I'll try not to do that here. Go Let's ahead. move on to tab number two. Yeah. Tab number two, I think, will be a little bit easier. It's a little bit more current. That's a setup. What the Zuck just happened. Even I have read this fabulous story about Mark Zuckerberg uh, writing a letter to his infant daughter and giving away, pledging to give away 99 percent. I, I think it was a warning to her, right, that you're not getting the money, but giving away 99 percent of his money while he's alive, which is sort of unusual given the sort of Gates and Buffett pledge that when they're dead, they're going to they're gonna give all their stuff to charity. And uh, I saw you actually wrote a piece – it was on your next draft where you said, you know, it's a shame that he can't respect his daughter's privacy and maybe like do it the other way around, right? Well, I just thought it was interesting. It was A, a generous act, obviously, an incredible leadership moment for his generation in many ways. But on the other hand, he celebrated the actual birth of his daughter the day his daughter was born by – putting this open letter to her up on Facebook for millions and millions of people to Which see. Which she can't read for another five or six years. Right. Or maybe in his case, three. Right. But if she has any idea about it, you know, it might be the first time in history that a, a new parent knows why their infant is crying. So we move on to what's behind tab number three on our official list. All right. Uh, this one is not a happy story, probably an easy one to guess, and it's 16 shots. 16 shots. 16 shots, of course, was the police shooting. And now we've got Rahm Emanuel, who, you know, probably job ought to be on the hook, but maybe is not as a result. Right. We're talking about the police shooting in uh, Chicago, one of the many ones, but this one happened to be caught on video. It took about a year for the officer, uh, Jason Van Dyke, to be arrested in the shooting. It happened to be coincidentally the day before the video was released that he was arrested. And as in all of these cases, people start either quitting or getting fired. And this time it was the police chief in Chicago. And I just wonder what, if anything, that move does in this day and age. You know, it used to be – it's obviously some kind of an effort to sort of stem the negative press tide. But does it really work? And is getting fired in this particular case even a punishment? I mean, would you want to be the police chief at this moment in Chicago? Oddly, I mean, you could ask that about almost any political job. And you'd have to say that there's just a certain kind of person who finds these things attractive and compelling enough to 
go through all the torture to get there. In terms of is it enough, I mean, blood in the water, you know, this is what we've talked about before, which is the, you know, sort of the rush of journalism, you know, the speed with which journalists have to get stuff up on the air and get stuff up on the web and, you know, they're never going to give up. And in some cases, they shouldn't. I think that was probably true in the Watergate case. But in some instances, you know, are you really adding to the dialogue? Are you really adding to the discussion or the, or the base of knowledge about the story? Or are you just screaming? Yeah. I mean, in this case, there was a journalist who who demanded and actually sued the city to get the videotape. So the story is progressing because of him. I just wonder if this – a firing of a single person, what does that have to do with the broader problem in a place where – a city has paid out, what is it, a half a billion dollars over the last 10 years you're, you're, to families who have suffered police shootings. You're forgetting something very important, which is Emmanuel, the mayor, actually created a commission. I mean, come on. Oh, know? there's a commission? There's a, okay, I, let's I move on to number four. As yeah. long as there's a commission, we're good. Yeah. Let's move on to tab number four. This one is shop right where you are. It has to do with Cyber Monday, shop right where you okay, are. I was going to say Cyber Monday. I knew you, you were going to say that. stole that away from me, that victory away from me. So go ahead and just say what the hell you're talking about. Well, you try to guess a little bit more. It does have to do with Cyber Monday, but what does it have to do with Cyber Monday? I know that was also on the tip of your tongue. Cyber so. Monday is like not true or that Cyber Monday is what? I don't know. Oh, no. Cyber Monday is true. Okay. There's nothing more. I failed. Go th- ahead. There's nothing more true in this world than internet shopping, my friend. <laughs> no, yeah, Cyber Monday. The, only, but, the thing I want to get. my wife does it every day. So does mine and I do too and so does basically everybody. Right. And the reason I'm bringing it up in here and shop right where you are is because of the mobile aspect of it. I find this incredible. We call ourselves old media meets older media. I'm wearing spectacles as we speak right now. So I can see my own notes. Who don't know. And what I find amazing is the pace at which mobile devices have completely come to dominate our internet use and our interactions of all kinds. There were $3 billion worth of sales on Cyber Monday, which doesn't seem particularly exciting. But 26% of those sales were done via mobile device. That just seems incredible. I cannot even see product descriptions or buy buttons on my mobile device. And yet 26%, I don't, I don't so even see the advantage. your shock is that you're old. That's mostly it. So this one, this one I'm going to move back into sort of the young, hip area. Okay. The headline is a little bit confusing, but I think it'll have a payoff in the end. And that is number six, sodomy and plethora. <laughs> I know it's technically pronounced plethora, yeah. but for this case, I went with sodomy and plethora. Or I'll I'll even give you a second headline, yeah. uh, sodomizing in public. Um, I'm only going to get in trouble and get it wrong, so just go ahead. Okay. This is a story about a week and a half ago, Match.com, a spinoff from IAC, went public. And Match.com- I was in Burma. Okay. My excuse. Okay. Match.com is huge in Burma. So Match.com went public and Match.com owns a ton of- these other small and large apps for dating and hooking up or whatever these young people are doing these days. And what was amazing was that Match.com had to do a special filing the day before they went public because in the weeks up to a company going public, it's something called a quiet period where people aren't allowed to give interviews and they're only allowed to say very narrow things. But one of their CEOs of one of their companies, Tinder, which is probably the most popular dating app these days, his name is Sean Rad, gave an interview that was published about a day and a half before the company went public. And it was so uh, unusual that the company actually had to file a special filing with the SEC the day before they went public. And the reason that they had to do that in part was that he discussed the company and in part because of an incredible quote that he had when he was talking to a journalist. 
And he was talking about the different types of women he's dated, and he doesn't have a great track record of discussing this topic in, let's say, non-trigger warning modern ways. But he came up with this quote, which I think is even unusual and enjoyable enough that almost anybody from any political perspective could enjoy. Here's his quote. She is one of the most beautiful women I've ever met, but it doesn't mean that I want to rip her clothes off and have sex with her. Attraction is nuanced. I've been attracted to women who are, well, who my friends might think are ugly. I don't care if somebody is a model. Really, it sounds cliched and almost totally unbelievable for a guy to say this, but it's true. I need an intellectual challenge. Apparently, there's a term for someone who gets turned on by intellectual stuff. You know, just talking. What's the word? And at this point, the uh, journalist writes, his face creases in an effort to try to remember something. I want to say sodomy. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. So I actually, even from Burma, yeah, heard about this. That was story. huge in Burma, right? Yeah. It's like yeah the giant. Sodomy, sodomy is now translates a little oddly. Yeah. But, an yeah. intellectual connection. You know, I said you talk about somebody who is really going wholeheartedly into this sort of mind-body connection. You know, what, anything, any way, anything you say beyond this is going to sound like it's intended elsewhere. You've never been accused of your brain being below your belt? Um, all the time, but I've never called it sodomy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. The main thing to remember here is that if you ever have wanted to go to the SEC filing uh, site on the internet and Don't search for the, the word sodomy. No, you can now use the word sodomy and actually get one result <laughs> thanks to Sean Rad. And is that the greatest name ever, by the way? If I, my name was Sean Rad, I would not need a device. If my last name was Rad, I would not need a dating site in order to score. Let me just say that for the record. Hey, Mom. Hey, Dad. Hey, Mom. I'm Rad. Hey, Mom. Hey, Dad. Hey, Mom. I'm Rad. All right, let's move on to our big issue of the week. And why don't you introduce that topic? We had talked about this uh, earlier, but the issue really is this notion of opinion versus fact. The trigger for us was CNN suspending its global affairs correspondent, Elise Labatt, if I'm pronouncing that right, for two weeks because of some tweets that she tweeted out. Uh, one which they didn't act on was about Obama and how he should be tougher uh, on ISIS. And the other was about uh, anti-immigrant legislation. Right. Her, her tweet was, House passes bill that could limit Syrian refugees Statue of Liberty bows head in anguish. So, so this was very poetic. The but two tweets were just to get on the record. One was pro uh, Syrian refugees who have been forced out of their country, and the other one was anti ISIS. So right, these were right. the two biases that were being raising the ire of CNN. Right, and this idea, however, this debate just shows how internal and circular these things are in media, and it's one of the reasons why we're failing. You know, 60 percent of the public doesn't trust the media to be fair or accurate. And years ago, Walter Cronkite was sort of the man everybody trusted in America. And, you know, his tweed jersey has been uh, retired since he was on CBS. But despite being the most trusted man in America, you know, he came out very strongly against the Vietnam War. He got away with it. No one suspended him. No one told him he had to be unbiased. And this whole notion of being unbiased is kind of silly, not because it's impossible to do stories where you're an observer, you watch and you listen, 
and you report facts and you report details that help people make up their own mind. There was a guy in El Salvador who I wanted to meet who was the famous death squad colonel down there. And I just went and I spent days with him. He was talking about how great Hitler was. I mean, he was a guy accused of dumping people's bodies in wells or dumping them into wells before they were bodies. But I just spent a lot of time and I just took a lot of notes on exactly what he said, what was in his room, what he wore, how he treated his men. And I did a long story about it for then San Francisco Examiner. And, you know, 99 percent of the people who read that story said, what a horrible human being. How could you not reach across the table and kill this guy? And 1% of the people, including the colonel himself, said, yeah, that's me. That's great. That's fabulous. And, you know, that, to, to me as a journalist, that's the kind of effect you want is you want to create enough in the way of actual information so people can, you know, will draw their own opinions as they will anyway. These days, however, it's about personalities. What sells is personalities. Jeff Zucker has become head of CNN and he's much more into people turning into personalities. What was patently unfair about suspending this reporter is all these guys and women at CNN do it. Anderson Cooper, outrage at Katrina. Don Lemon, outrage at the stop and frisk or young black men wearing their pants down or, you know, whatever that may be. But where, it's interesting. Where do we sort of draw the line in bias? As we're recording this, America is suffering yet another mass shooting in San Bernardino, California. And – Every news source that I looked at, whether it was on Twitter or watching CNN streaming or MSNBC, were talking about the the shooters involved in this latest mass shooting as being monsters, as being evil, questioning how can people do such terrible things, which all seems completely rational to me. But that's not technically unbiased. That's not the definition of unbiased. But is calling a mass murderer uh, somebody t bad is is coming out saying that we need to do more to destroy ISIS. Is that not unbiased enough? It is a form of bias. And I wonder if trying to pretend that those biases don't exist actually does the news a disservice, if anything. Well, look, I mean, you know, Jim Acosta of CNN, which we're talking about CNN, asked Obama about dealing with, quote, those bastards talking about ISIS. And, you know, I mean, there's a there's a problem with fact. The business model of media today for those – I mean we're – the Center for Investigative Reporting is nonprofits, so this doesn't account for nonprofits. But for all the for-profit media companies, the business model is antithetical to fact-finding. Why? Because it's all about, as you said the other day, speed, how fast can you get it on the air. It's really not – it's about personality. It's about sort of pimping your own personality. It's really not about what – can be a very slow, long process about finding actual facts. So when Jim Acosta says, refers to them as bastards, you know, like, are, are we doing a paternity test? I mean, how do we know? Are we like madmen? Are we interviewing psychiatrists who've like had these guys on their couch? Yeah. I mean, you, you know, there is a point at which you can't, you know, you can't claim to be a factual, unbiased reporter if you're saying things like that. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I write a newsletter, Next Draft, as you know, and I, I write my own sort of blurbs about news stories. And my logo is a sort of a comic book version of my head. It always has been. And every day I have a ton of opinion in there and I have a ton of bias in there. The fact that I'm picking or not picking a story is bias. The value add of my newsletter is that it's my personality layered over uh, the day's news. And yet, if I write something that offends a certain reader, the first thing they write in after the expletives 
or uh, I want to get my news from a more unbiased source. And it's like, well, start by signing up for something that doesn't have a person's head at the top of it <laughs> and isn't written by one person. It's like they know intuitively that everything I'm writing is, of course, biased. If it's not biased, you might as well read the news delivered by a computer algorithm. And yet when they disagree with it, it's suddenly this incredible unbiased. The interesting thing about the CNN thing is they were basically suspending a reporter for saying something that I'm sure everybody that works at CNN basically agrees with, which is that the House passing in the anti-refugee bill was uh, a, a step backwards. Yeah. Well, what's interesting to me is that we're sort of – you could be in the post-fact era. In fact, I think there was a headline somewhere that says, are we in – is it post-truth? Meaning, is it a lie? But you don't want to say it's a lie. You don't want to call him a liar, but so you call it post-truth. Yeah, that was actually a CNN chyron that ran across the screen at one point that said, does Donald Trump transcend the truth? Transcend the truth. Yes. But I think it was the D Daily News or one of the yeah. New York tabs that basically said post-truth. Yeah. And, you know, that's really true. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. That, you know, Donald Trump is sort of finding a new way to say whatever he wants to say. It's not exactly stonewalling, but, you know, Nixon gave stonewalling a bad name. Trump is basically just continues to repeat what he says and won't let anyone else challenge him and won't accept the challenge. And there's a problem yeah. because there's generally been a relationship between the press and officials, public officials in this country going back forever where there's an understanding that, you know, you have to to some extent, you need the press. You need to have a relationship with the press and can be and should be adversarial. But, you know, it has to be an understanding that – if I ask you a question, you, you know, you have to either lie about it, answer it truthfully, or like look like you're trying to avoid it. Now it's kind of Donald Trump is just saying, like, I'm just telling you what I'm telling you. I'm going to keep repeating it. I'm going to keep repeating it. I'm going to keep repeating it. I'm going to keep having the same poll numbers or better. So I don't care what you think. I don't care what you write about me. And, you know, there's a, there's a power in that. It's a little bit demagogic, but it's, there's a real power there. Yeah. I mean, the one hint he gives that he's lying is that he constantly says, oh, it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. <laughs> I think he's sort of giving us an unconscious hint at his entire campaign. That may be worth 10 percent right there in the polls. Yeah. Well, Trump is uh, probably bad for America, but if you have ever wanted to take a course in media training, you can save your money and just watch this guy for three or four days and you got it down. Stay on message and don't care what anybody else says. Yeah, and the emotion piece of it is, I think, hugely popular. And this is what, you know, whether it's Anderson Cooper or any of these other people who may be very good journalists otherwise, they are trying to create emotion. There was a, a 40 percent, according to the news hour, I was listening to the news hour. 40% decline in empathy among college students. So, you know, we may have a cycle coming up here where it's no longer where that kind of emotion and that kind of personality no longer carries quite the weight it did. That's maybe some wishful thinking. Yeah. But, you know, part of the problem is, is that journalists have always insisted that they're sort of above the fray and that they aren't flawed. There's a higher calling disease is what I used to call it when I was more a part of that world. You know, we understand these things and we know how they go and we know the truth and we know what to tell you. Well, this isn't doesn't explain why the New York Times has four or five corrections on Hillary Clinton's story about her tapes, about her email rather. So I think, you know, we have to accept the fact that we are flawed and try and do the best job we can. But I think there is a job that journalists do and it is about context and it is about detail. And it is also, frankly, about presenting these things in an interesting way. In the days of Walter Cronkite, he understood how to do that, to deliver that news in a way that made you feel like you wanted to trust him. Edward R. Murrow, fabulous, you know, on the radio, which was his medium. 
also a guy who, who stood up against McCarthy and opinionated. These days, frankly, opinionators are just pimps for themselves. And this probably is a good time for me to say, if you wanted to sign up for my newsletter, Next Draft, <laughs> you can do so at nextdraft.com. There's also an iPhone app. And uh, let's segue out of this and see if there's any kind of bias we can add to areas of our personal life. This is our section where we talk about what really hurts. Uh, imagine uh, two of us are wrapped in towels in a steam room and you get to come in and join and hear us that, whine. That, that already really is uh, something you just don't want to think about too much. Yeah. Well, I'd like to make the audience hurt a little bit so it's not just us. It's sort of including <laughs> everybody. So let's go. Why don't you do your, your personal hurt of the week first? Well, I, you know, it was going to be something about – Burma and, you know, not as young as I used to be and people I was over there with uh, who were older than I was who were t- putting up with the uh, temperature and the humidity and the culture and the exercise a lot better than I was. But something happened this morning. My son, who's eight, about to be nine this month, was going to school with his younger sister and he just turned to me and he said, Dad, I don't trust the news. Wow. <laughs> I, You've like, done well. I You've was, done well obvi- as a father. Obviously, he's, he's paid close attention to my, you know, lengthy career. All right. Now, and now we know we have at least two listeners between my mom and your son. <laughs> and I said uh, – and I asked him, well, so why are you saying that? Why don't you trust the news? And he said, well, I think it's actually a 50-50 chance they're right, <laughs> which I thought was, you know, pretty good, especially if you look at the 60 percent of people who don't – he's doing better than yeah. the rest of the population. Yeah. And he looked at me and you could tell that I must have had a look on my face of, you know, being distraught about this because then he said, it's okay, dad. Maybe that's just the weather report. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so that was my hurt for the, for the week, my yeah. pain. We have, a, we have an editor in the making there. Yeah, we have a critic in the making. Yeah, well, he thinks 50% of the uh, news might be true, so he only has 50% to go. He's nine. You're going to have him ready for college, no problem. Dude. Yeah, I'm going to put him on uh, FanDuel right away. Yeah, so uh, – my hurt this week also includes my nine-year-old son. Maybe this is uh, something about parenting here. Let's never get them together. Yeah. We're going to get them together. Yeah. Mark Zuckerberg gave away 99% of his uh, money when he had a kid. He should have saved some as a carrot stick approach to sleep training. <laughs> it gets a little bit harder. But anyway, it's also incredibly enjoyable, of course. Of course. Let me get that, get that out of the way. But here's mine. So I took my son the other day. Uh, you're not a huge sports fan, as you've mentioned here a few times. I'm more of a sports fan, and I'm one of those guys who does not leave a game early. But the other night, there was an exception to that. I went to the Cal game for the Were first time in a while. Your, no, no, you're, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm preparing my device for okay. my hurt includes a device. So I uh, was at the game. Cal was playing Arizona State. It was the last home game of the year, and probably the last uh, home game of their excellent quarterback Jared Goff, uh, who was the son of a high school classmate of mine. Just to make us feel slightly more old, uh, and we were at the game, and we had really bad seats. And it was completely freezing. And my nine-year-old son had a sniffle that day. I was debating whether I should bring him anyway. Cal was getting absolutely crushed in the first half. It was probably their worst half of football of the year in a year that's already been troubling. And we were freezing. And I was there with another dad and his son. And we decided, let's just try to make it to halftime and then we'll split, okay? So we leave at halftime. 
which is against my usual thing. But like I say, this game was over. It was like 24 to 3 or 24 to 7, and Cal was looking worse than that. As we were departing the stadium, which I was happy about, it really was cold. Not for a, if you're a Cleveland Brown fan, it wasn't cold, but if you're a Bay Area boy like I am, it was freezing. So as we're leaving the stadium, we hear a loud, loud cheer of the crowd, which means that the third quarter started with an incredibly quick touchdown by the Bears. And as we started driving home uh, from Berkeley to Marin, we also heard several other touchdowns. And what was amazing about it, the part that hurt, aside from everything here, uh, is that not only did I miss this game and miss uh, sort of the last half of great football, Cal come back and win, obviously, otherwise why would this hurt? But to rub it in, many of you know that Cal is most famous, the Cal football team, for the play several years ago when they came back against Stanford in the most unbelievable play in college football history. It's not the one where they hit the band. Right? Yes, the band was involved. But – Joe Starkey, the guy who called that play, is still the Cal uh, announcer on the radio. And so I was getting home and I was putting my son into his nice warm bed and we heard Cal score the field goal that won the game. And just to give you some idea of how horrible this was, Joe Starkey felt the need to tell us not only did Cal win and not only was it an amazing moment, but that in his 30 years of covering college and pro football, including the play, this was the most amazing half of football he had ever seen. And to prove it, I actually, thanks to the internet, have that oh right here Pick is up. just to show you how much this hurt. Get up. Oh my gosh. Anderson hits the field goal. The Bears will finish the season at 7-5 and five in one of the most incredible finishes you will ever see in a Cal football game. One of the greatest second halves of football I have seen in 40 years of pro and college ball. All right. I, I feel your pain, less so because I'm not a sports fan. But as a dad, I feel your pain. Imagine going to Burma and having there be no action there to cover. That's what this was like. <laughs> yeah. And then come home and see it all in a movie. Let's get to our what you like to call in next draft the bottom of the news. These are our favorite stories that are a little uh, weird. I guess I should have really saved the uh, sodomy story for this. It's a so, hanger. It's a pun. <laughs> it's a cliffhanger. It's a pun. Yeah, yeah, I got it. Okay, go. You go first. Lay it on me. This is when we trade a few stories that we found uh, either funny, depressing, or just oddly noticeable for some reason. You right. lay it on us first. Okay, because this is this tends to get to what we complain about a lot anyway, what we started complaining about before this podcast ever started. This is Yahoo lists the 10 health problems you think you have. <laughs> the doctors tell you you probably don't. But it is, of course, based on internet search. I think I've said before on the show that my doctor once told me, don't look up anything on the internet that starts with a P, and that way you avoid all sorts of problems. But here they are, and I want our certainly our older listeners to determine whether any one of these is their 10 health problems they think they have. We're going to name all 10 now. Diabetes, depression, COPD, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, thyroid, acid reflux. Who doesn't have that, by the way? Asthma, bipolar disease. Uh, I don't, but I know lots of people do. And low testosterone. People don't generally want to admit that. But I'm, I'm, I would say I'm running about 50-50. What about you? That's not bad. I'm only probably about 40, but I have a lot of obscure things that doctors haven't quite discovered yet also. Yeah, think of all the things that they didn't put in, like Lyme disease and Parkinson's and, you know, I mean, those are the things that everybody thinks they that I think everyone thinks they have because probably I think I have it. Yeah, I spent the last 72 hours um, sure that my earwax was a tumor. <laughs> 
But it turns out you can't flush tumors out by just spraying some water in there. Yeah, but you have to treat them as waste product. That's true. I composted it. Okay. All right. So I hate purchasing cars. I hate everything about purchasing cars. I also hate selling cars. I often find myself giving them away at the end because I want to do anything to avoid the humiliation of going to the lot and dealing with a car salesman, whether it's uh, buying or selling. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I'm that worried if I spend an extra 500 or save an extra 500 in the long run. It's not necessarily that. It's just the straight up humiliation that I know they're laughing when I walk off the lot. But this week, uh, the attorney general of California has sued two of those car companies or car charity companies that are always on the radio and TV and the newspaper asking you to donate your car and then you get the write-off. Well, it turns out that most of the money that they were getting by selling your car was just going to pay the staff there. Very little of it, if any, was ending up at the charity. And it just – it struck me that even if you give your car away, you get ripped off by the car dealer. It's just impossible. Everything about owning a car, buying, selling, or giving away is the same. It's all horrible. It's like the insurance ad that says, you know, you've paid for the insurance. Now you got to pay again if you have an accident. Yes, it's always true. Um, okay, my next one – is actually comes from one, something I was going to do the, the other week and didn't get around to. But this is uh, a young woman named Darian Adrian, sorry, Hazlitt Davis, who was uh, seriously injured in the Boston Marathon, and American Airline lost her luggage, which included her leg, her prosthetic leg. I mean, I shouldn't laugh because I mean it's really serious. But she's she had a great sense of humor. Uh, she tweeted out, "I lost." They lost my luggage with over $250,000 of leg and dance parts. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, fortunately, there's a picture she tweeted out, a fabulous picture of her smiling with her prosthetic leg, which they found only as a last dig at American Airlines. She says, reunited, and it feels so good. All right. Uh, this one was just something that I happened to see in a bookstore the other day that I found so absurd that I wanted to share it with you. I thought of you immediately because it's so absurd. Uh, as you know, uh, there are moments in history that are hard to candy coat and that it's okay if kids of certain age are aware of these historic events. I'm going to call Kristallnacht one of those events. It's yeah. not necessarily something that we have to put a smiley face on. And yet, I saw a book the other day in the children's section of a local bookstore in Marin. And the title was Benno and the Night of Broken Glass. And the subtitle or the description is A Neighborhood Cat observes the changes in German and Jewish families in Berlin during the period leading up to Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. This cat's eye view introduces the Holocaust to children in a gentle way that can open discussion of this period. As a child of Holocaust survivors and one of whom survived Kristallnacht, let me say that there is not really a good gentle way to introduce Kristallnacht, <laughs> even with a cute kitty. Good God. Well, you know, I just happen to have something that's related to that. But of course. Not nearly that deep and painful. But uh, there was a story, the 400 richest people in the U.S. have a greater collection of wealth than 36 million ordinary households. That was the actual story that came out, in, out of the Forbes list. But – this one site basically had a giant picture of a cat, a kitten, because, of course, what sells the, on the internet, what gets you clicks more than cats, maybe dogs. And they said, Forbes' list of fat cats have more money than all regular cat owners in America. So I thought that was an interesting stretch to get cats and pictures of cats into a story that had nothing 
at all to do with cats. Yeah. As much as I try to convince my cats that they're lucky to be part of the 1%, they totally don't believe me. And speaking of the 1%, uh, the, my last one is a billionaire who charged – maybe you had this in Next Trap. I don't remember reading it – $170 million to his American Express card to get frequent flyer miles. He bought a bunch of art, $170 million. Now, I'm not sure. I think I have a limit on my card and I think it's like 300 bucks. This guy clearly has no limit. You know, like 20 years ago, there was a story on 60 Minutes about a couple that would go to the bank and use their credit card to take out cash and then immediately go to the next teller and just deposit that cash back in the bank. And it was a loophole in the credit card companies. And in the 60 Minutes piece, it was a reporter sitting with them with these huge travel books that they had made, just flipping through all the different places they had visited using this trick. And I thought it was pretty awesome. So, so this was around the world pictures at ATM. It was incredible. They beat the system. or They've probably been hunted down by the credit card companies by now. And maybe we should end on a religious note because we've gone way over and we need some forgiveness for this, like higher than just our, our uh, listeners. But this comes from The Guardian UK. Star Wars actor Carrie Fisher has blasted UK cinemas for refusing to show an advert, which is advertisement in English, by the Church of England, which features the Lord's Prayer after citing fears that it could offend people. This gets us back to the microaggression safe room issue. She said, offended? No, people should get a life. <laughs> so there's Carrie Fisher, who's about to star in yet another Star Wars, telling people they need to get a life and stop worrying about uh, religious ads. Uh, next to Star Wars. So there we go. Do you want to add anything on, on, on a close? I don't want to end on a down note, but I just wholeheartedly reject the idea of getting a life. I refuse. Well, that's why we're here, Dave. And that's why it's always good to see you every week because I know I'm breathing. And that's why it hurts. Yeah. So thanks a lot for joining us. If you want to know more about what Phil's up to, definitely check out revealnews.org. We're coming from their studios. They have an incredible podcast that you can get. And they also have a lot of great investigative journalism that you can find at revealnews.org. If you want to read Next Draft, head over to nextdraft.com where you can sign up for the newsletter or download the app for your iPad or iPhone. These sounds are being brought to you by the very, very talented Jim Briggs, who, as we always mention, we feel sorry for because he must listen to this at least twice, which is at least once more than even me or Phil. Or he could just cut it in half. That he might do as well. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks again for joining us, and hopefully uh, you have some hurts this week. You've been listening to What Hurts with Phil Bronstein of Reveal and Dave Pell of Next Draft.